Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We appreciate you listening every week at this same time for Bible Crossfire. What we do on this program is try to give you a Bible answer to your Bible questions, not just what we think or what we want the answer to be, but a Bible answer. You know, I thought we'd talk about 2 John verses 9 through 11 tonight while we're waiting on our first call. There are several important truths we learn from 2 John verses 9 through 11. It reads, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed, for he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. First, we learn from this passage that doctrine is important. Many preachers and churches want to de-emphasize doctrine because there is disagreement on such between them. But verse 9 says if we don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, we don't have God, so we can't be saved. If our salvation is dependent upon it, doctrine must be super important. Matthew 15 verse 9 explains, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So if we teach the commandments of men instead of the commandments of God, our worship will be in vain. And we certainly can't be saved that way. Bottom line is we have to get our doctrine right to be saved. Second, we learn that salvation is not by faith only. Salvation by faith only says as long as we have faith in Christ, we will be saved even if we are not following what Christ said. But verse 9 teaches we must believe in Christ enough to follow what he taught, that is, abide in his doctrine. And James 2.24 will always prove salvation by faith only to be false. It says, ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Third, baptism is necessary to salvation. If we are not baptized, then we are not abiding in the doctrine of Christ. Because Christ's doctrine teaches we should be baptized. Mark 16, 16 makes this point very simply but conclusively. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Fourth, we learn from 2 John verses 9-11 through 11 that obedience in general is necessary to salvation. What we just said about baptism is also true about any instruction from God. If we do not obey such instructions... We are not abiding in the teaching of Christ. So according to verse 9, we don't have God. We can't be saved. Passages like Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9 drive this point home. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Fifth, we learn that once saved, always saved is false. Suppose a person were to get saved, but then later quit abiding in the teaching of Christ. 2 John 9 would teach he is without God and therefore without salvation. So he was saved at one point, but then lost his salvation due to not abiding in the teaching of Christ. The doctrine of once saved, always saved says a Christian will be saved regardless of whether he abides in Jesus' teaching, but 2 John 9 flatly contradicts that theory. Galatians 5.4 also proved once saved, always saved false when it reads, Christ is become of no effect unto you, Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, Baptists say a Christian can't fall from grace, but this verse said some in that day already had fallen from grace. Six, we learn that we must not fellowship error. 
Second John verses 10 through 11 say that if we bid someone Godspeed who is in sin, we become a partaker in their evil deeds. So not only must we follow Christ's teachings personally, we should not help someone else to sin or encourage them in their sin. Ephesians 5.11 confirms this by saying, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Annette from Florida, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I would like to know your thoughts in in regard to divorce. Yes, ma'am. There are four or five very critical passages on divorce and remarriage in the New Testament. And Matthew 19.9 is a good one to start with. Let me read that to you, Annette. Jesus is speaking here in Matthew 19.9, and you can look this up for yourself later. He says, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Does that pretty clear to you, Annette, what that's teaching? Mm, yes. Um. It, it's basically saying if a man divorces his wife for any reason other than fornication, any reason other than the fact that she's cheating on him sexually, if he does that and he remarries, that second marriage is an adulterous marriage. And whoever marries the put-away woman, they're committing adultery. So the only scriptural cause in that for divorce is fornication. Let's suppose I was a drunkard. I got drunk uh-huh. every Saturday night. That's a sin. That's bad. And suppose I was mean to my wife. Uh-huh. But I could not, my wife could not divorce me for that cause scripturally because it's not fornication. The only way she can scripturally divorce me is if I commit fornication, I cheat on her sexually, then she has the option of divorcing me for that reason. No other reason is scriptural, according to Jesus in Matthew 19.9. You see what I'm saying, Annette? Yes. Well, Do you have any... What, f- if, what if there's no love in the marriage and everyone has their own lives and everyone has their own room? Is that it, it considering as divorce? Because they're not one at that point. No. No. I'm going to give you a passage in Ephesians chapter 5. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So if the husband does not love his wife, you know what he needs to do? Uh Repent. He needs to repent of that and work on starting to love her again. When you're married to somebody, the Bible teaches... Do you remember, Annette, if you got married in the ceremony, you probably said, Till death do us part, right? Yes. God expects you to fulfill that agreement. And if you don't love your husband, you need to repent of that and start loving him. You can't divorce him unless he cheats on you sexually. So just because you don't love him doesn't mean you can divorce him. That just means you need to repent and start loving him again. And that may take some work because it's a thought process. But the Bible teaches that's what you have to do. It's not optional. We have to love our, our spouses. Anything else, Annette? Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your call. If anybody would talk to me, like to talk to me further about divorce and remarriage or any other Bible topic in depth through the week, just send me an email and you can go to my website, BibleCrossFire.com. At the very top there, there's a button 
or an icon to click to send me an email, and we can talk about any Bible subject to your heart's content. Mark from Idaho, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, a question about baptism. The uh, guy on the cross where Jesus says, today you'll be in paradise with me. Yes. And he, and he wasn't baptized. So he wasn't yeah. baptized. How is he getting that in heaven? Mark, have you ever noticed a passage like Hebrews nine sixteen and 17? Let me read that to you. It says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. And this is using something we're all familiar with to make a point. My parents wrote their will in the 1970s when myself and my three brothers were little boys. But they did... So, but, so they the will says it's... Both the inheritance is to be divided between their four sons equally. But we did not inherit anything. The will did not go into effect, Mark, until after they both passed away in the year 2001 and then 2010 when my mother passed away. So the will that was written in 1970s did not go into effect until the last one of my parents died in 2010. Now, the writer of Hebrews is is making a point from that. He's saying the same thing is true about Jesus' last will and testament. We call it, we have in our Bibles the Old Testament. That's also called the Law of Moses. In the New Testament, also called the Law of Christ. And this passage is saying that this New Testament did not go into effect until after the death of the testator. Now, Mark, who would the testator be? That would be Jesus. That's right. And so the New Testament law that requires baptism for salvation did not go into effect until after Jesus died. As a matter of fact, about 50 days after he died and then was resurrected, right before he ascended up to heaven was when he gave the great commission, which says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The thief on the cross lived under the Old Testament law. He was never under the law that says you have to be baptized to be saved. Just like for the same reason Adam didn't have to be baptized to be saved, or Abraham, or Moses, or Jacob. None of those people had to be baptized. Baptism is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. This is a New Testament requirement. The New Testament law didn't go into effect until after Jesus died. As a matter of fact, we understand that Jesus lived perfectly. That doesn't mean he lived sinlessly according to the New Testament law, but sinlessly according to the Old Testament law. You follow what I'm saying, Mark? Yeah, so the old testament, the old test, old, old covenant, um, doesn't he have to do a sacrifice to get his sin forgiven? That's right. The old testament, you have to do sacrifice to get your sin forgiven, but not so baptism. How is he getting into heaven then with the old covenant? Well, because you didn't necessarily have to make the sacrifice yourself personally. The priest made the sacrifice. But the bottom line on your question, Mark, is. Regardless of how the thief on the cross got to heaven, it was based upon the Old Testament law and Jesus forgiving him before the New Testament law went into effect. And the New Testament law is what requires baptism. So the thief on the cross didn't have to be baptized because that was not commanded until after he commanded to be saved until after he, until after uh, many days after he died. Mark, I'm going I'm to let right. you go well, and take another well, caller. Jesus is God. He could just forgive him, and he's forgiven, and he can go to heaven. Is that what you're saying? Uh, 
Jesus is God, and he can forgive anybody he wants to. In the New Testament, right. though, okay. he requires that a person be baptized to be saved. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark sixteen sixteen. Peter said, by okay. the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Acts two thirty eight. Repent to people who had already believed. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So not only do we have to be baptized to get the remission of sins, you have to be baptized for that reason, for the remission of sins. First Peter 3.21 says, Baptism doth also now save us. So that shows that you have to be baptized to be saved. And Ananias told Saul of Tarsus in Acts 22.16, who was already a believer, already praying, he said, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So Saul later became known as Paul, wrote practically half the books in the New Testament. He had to be baptized to get his sins washed away. Let me mention something real quick while we have a break here in the callers. I have uh, preaching next week, toward the end of the week, a gospel meeting near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then on the Monday and Tuesday following that, I'm uh, conducting a debate. I'm involved in a religious debate on the two subjects are once saved, always saved, and infant baptism. Over That's near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So if you're in the eastern uh, western part of Pennsylvania or the central part of Pennsylvania toward the end of next week or early uh, the next week you might want to come hear me preach uh, as part of that gospel meeting or you might want to come to the debate if you want to get the details about the preaching or and or the debating go to my website biblecrossfire.com and at the top you can click on a link to pull up the flyers for the gospel meeting and for the debate in Pennsylvania, that would be uh, August uh, 22nd through 25th for the gospel meeting and 26th and 27th for the debate. I hope to see you there. Go to BibleCrossFire.com to get more information, to get the details. James from Virginia, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Hey, Patrick, I enjoy your show every every Sunday. Um, I'd like uh, your comments on uh, 1 Corinthians 15:28 regarding the nature of the Trinity eschatologically. This this is a verse that I've often wondered about, you know, when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. I think the part that I'm most curious about is this that God may be all in all. In other words, what is what are the nature of the persons of the Trinity at this point that would be different than the nature of the persons of the Trinity now? You know, I'm not sure about that last phrase, James, but for the audience's sake, let me start in verse 27. Okay. Talking about the Father, it says, He hath put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet. When he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And then the verse you quoted, And when all things shall be subdued, subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so what this is saying is that Jesus is going to be subject to God the Father. It's like he, we might say in our vernacular, second in command. We see that same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, James. It says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So the okay. head of Christ is God the Father. 
And verse 27 and 28 is saying basically Jesus is in charge of the church right now, but then at the end of the world when Jesus comes back, he's going to turn it back over to the Father and he'll be subject to the Father again. That last phrase that says that God may be all in all, I'm not sure what that James, James, what that means unless it means that God will be put back, God the Father, back in the position of total authority like he was before the church age started. If it doesn't mean that, I'm not sure what it means, James. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. It gives me a lot to chew on. I appreciate it. Yeah, send me an email, James, at Go to BibleCrossFire.com during the week. Send me an email, and I'd like to talk to you about this further when we can talk about it in depth, just one-on-one. You know what I'm saying? That would be great. I'd love to do it. Do that. BibleCrossFire.com. Anybody in the audience that wants to go and learn about the debate I was talking about or send me an email, do that. William from Colorado, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Uh, Hello, Patrick. Just a quick question, and I'll let you go. I'm, I'm not sure of the uh, scripture verse, but it says the Lord will judge the quick and the dead. I understand the latter, but who are the quick? Thank you. Well, okay. That's, I believe, in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, which reads this way. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and and the dead as his, at his appearing in his kingdom. This is a little bit confusing because, probably because the King James has some antiquated words. When we see the word quick in the King James Version, many times it means alive. Like, we're thinking in our vernacular, quick just means somebody does something real fast. But you think of when we say, you're, you say you're cutting your fingernails, you're trimming your fingernails, and you go too far to the quick. You cut it back to the quick and it hurts, doesn't it? What we mean by that, the quick, is is that you're cutting it back. You're not just cutting off dead skin or whatever. You're getting into the live skin and it hurts very bad. So quick in the King James Version many times doesn't just mean it happens very fast, but it means this is something that's alive. Quick, alive. And so when it says God on the final day will judge the quick and the dead, he's talking about the alive and the dead. He's going to judge those that are dead and those that are still alive when he comes. I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it's talking about. Tony from California, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yeah, hi, Patrick. Um, just had a question regarding uh, the judgment seats um, when we're all judged. Um, what exactly will we be being judged on? Um, I've always wondered if it's our sins that we committed. But then I think, well, if God forgives us our sins, and He said He will, as far as Jesus from the West, He will forgive us of our sins. He won't. I mean, He He won't remember them anymore. What exactly then uh, will will be will He judge us on during the judgment? You know, that's a very good question. I'm think Tony. I'm looking at Revelation chapter twenty, verse twelve. This is part of the great white throne scene, which is the final yeah. judgment day. And it says, "I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open." And another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And so it looks like to me, and there's, uh, there's other passages like 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 that says we're going to be judged based upon the things that we did in our bodies. And so what it looks like it's saying here is, is that our works are going to be compared 
to what's written in the books, and I'm pretty sure this is talking about the books of the Bible. The book of life would be like the book that God has that is the list of the names of all the saved people. But here we're talking about the books in contrast to the book of life. I believe this is the books of the Bible. And on the judgment day, our works, how we lived, will be compared or judged based upon what God's New Testament law says. Does that make sense, Tony? Yeah. Now, um, so if our work, if we do good works, but what if we also do bad works that, that we repent of, I guess? Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it does. So it does make sense. Look at the good works, and, and <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, our good works be the, I guess, judge of the ones that, you know, all the, the ones that we repented of. Hopefully, those won't be remembered. But um, our, our good works, I guess, <laughs> is what I'm at, wondering if that's what he's. You know, there are many passages like Luke 13, verse 3, that says, except you repent, you shall all, all likewise perish. So if we're talking about right. things that we've done, sins that we've done, like, for right. example, Revelation 21, verse 8, says that all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. That's not talking about a person that he's lied, but he repented of that. He's not a liar anymore if right. he's repented of that. A person is right. a liar who's one who continues to lie and does not repent. So you're right. When if we repent, God will forgive us. You remember, I already quoted a verse when we were talking about baptism earlier. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So if a person will repent, he'll receive the remission of sins. So we're not going to be judged negatively based upon things that we repented of and, and got forgiveness uh, from God for based upon the blood of Christ. We won't. Okay. You've, yeah, that, that that answered my question. That's what I was thinking too. But I just. Uh, that verse always confused me. <laughs> so Yeah. Tony, I'd love for you to write me, perhaps sure. email or whatever. Sometime during the week, let's talk more. You can go to my website, BibleCrossfire.com, and right at the top, there's an icon you can click that'll automatically, it's a form you fill out and sends me an email, and then we can talk about email about this. I'd love to talk to you further I, about it, Tony. I appreciate that, Patrick. Thank you very much. Hope to hear from you this thank, week. Thank you. You're welcome. So, and Tony's exactly right that, you know, all of us sin except for Jesus Christ. He was perfect. We all sin. And to be for, forgiven of sin, it's going to be, have to be based upon the death of Christ. We don't have any way of absolving our guilt. It's going to have to be based upon the death of Christ. He paid for our sins. But it's conditioned upon our obedience, our trust and obedience. And one of the things it's conditioned upon is our repentance. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke thirteen three, for example. And I mentioned Acts two thirty eight. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so it's conditioned upon our repentance. Let me read Acts three verse nineteen, where Peter was preaching. This is almost like a parallel to two thirty eight. It says, "Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord." So we got to repent and be converted, so that our sins will be blotted out. No sin will be forgiven unless we repent. We can't just continue on in sin and ask God to forgive us. That's not repenting. That's reporting. We can't just report our sins. We've got to repent of our sins. Let me illustrate. Here you have a homosexual. People call in on the program every now and then and ask me, can homosexuals be saved? Can they be forgiven? Yes, absolutely, based upon the blood of Christ. But only if they repent. They cannot be forgiven. They cannot be saved from their sins if they 
determined that they're going to continue in that sin. So if a homosexual says, I'm going to be a homosexual, I don't care what the Bible says, he will not be forgiven. He can ask God to forgive him, but God's not going to forgive him unless he repented. Unless he repents. And that means he makes up his mind that he's going to quit that sin and he follows through on that commitment. Any sin is like that. Any sin is like that. We need to examine our own lives. And, and you know, Patrick Donahue needs to examine his own life too. We are trying to live according to God's word. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so those that love and respect God will keep his commandments. Whenever I disobeyed my dad when I was a young man or a boy, it showed disrespect for him. So even though we're saved by the grace of Christ, love and respect for God demands that we're going to try to do everything he says to the letter because we respect him, we love him. When we do that, we try as hard as we can to do that. Sometimes we fail, we sin. But because we have the right kind of heart, the kind of heart that wants to serve the, the God of heaven, then we repent of that sin and ask God to forgive us, and he does. And we face him in judgment clean from our sins. Be sure and listen next week at this same time.